end on page 114, which uh, is titled Significant Language in First Corinthians, Dr. Bernard says, we now turn to an ex examination of the key statements in the two letters concerning the identity of Jesus. One purpose is to obtain a clear picture of Christ through the eyes of Paul. We will seek to avoid anachronistic interpretations, that is, to explain the text, we will not employ later concepts such as Venetarianism, Trinitarianism, or modalism. Nevertheless, we must recognize the embeddedness of our analysis. There is no neutral place from which to examine a text objectively or in isolation from its history of reception. At best, we can identify our location and proceed with grammatical historical exegesis. We must also understand that the ultimate purpose of exegesis and of the present study is to speak to contemporary issues. So even as we seek to exegete with intellectual integrity and with respect for a majority of scholarship, we will relate our exegesis to questions of interest to, uh, to contemporary global Christianity as explained in chapter two. He starts by quoting, uh, of course, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians verses 1 through 2, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and of our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. From the onset, Paul identified both himself and his readers in relation to Jesus Christ. He was an apostle, which means a messenger, ambassador, excuse me, ambassador, commissioner of Jesus. And the church in Corinth was sanctified, which means to be set apart, consecrated or made holy by Jesus. Here, Paul attributed to Jesus both the commissioning authority and sanctifying power, transis, transcending the power that the Jews attributed to humans. Paul used the phrase in Christ, which in the Greek is in Christu, to speak of God's saving work on the behalf of humans. He lists as a scripture reference there, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter at the fourth verse, 2 Corinthians, uh, the second chapter at the 14th verse. The phrase, which I have uh, recently mentioned, which is in Christu, uh, occurs in context, which suggests that it denotes the place, which he has in parentheses, field of force, focus, or means of God's action. He further identifies the saints, which are the sanctified ones, holy ones, as those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. In this context, to speak of Jesus Christ as Lord is to give him a divine title and from a Jewish perspective, even to identify him with or as Yahweh. Uh, and he has a footnote there, uh, which is his 25th footnote, which is uh, he references see our discussion in chapter four on first Corinthians 16, 22 in the chapter to call on the name, which I think as uh, especially as one of the Pentecostals, we're very much known as using that phrase indicates a ritual act of worship, a formal invoking of the name of a deity, particularly in sacrifice, prayer praise or worship 
and he has it there at the footnote uh, just as a reference to that being a fact. And I have this book if anybody wants a free copy of it. It's called Did the Christian, the First Christians Worship Jesus? It's by James uh, Dunn, uh, and it's uh, on page 128 dealing with the Yahweh text. In the Old Testament, people invoke the name of Yahweh in this fashion. Indeed, there is little evidence that for Jews, this phrase ever applied to anyone other than Yahweh. How insightful is that? That this wonderful phrase that sometimes in the English is very for uh, very easy, at least for me, to overlook it because it doesn't exactly register with our thought process all the time. But when we say that phrase, call on the name of the Lord, based on the information here in which James G. Dunn was not oneness, and that's why I like letting everyone know the source of that. What I find interesting is that it is a, a almost, if you don't get an idea that this is deity that's being personified in this language, it's kind of hard to see it. Oh, but my mind goes back. Uh, we used to sing a song growing up and it wasn't uh, by James G.D. Dunn, but it was by Mother uh, White. And she sung a song said, ain't no harm done calling on Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord. And I don't think she ever read James G.D. Dunn, but there is some truth to it that even if you don't know the meaning of it, you can still get the benefit of it by calling on the name of the Lord. Socio-rhetorically, Paul employed the name of Jesus as the functional equivalent of Yahweh. To identify and divine, define Christian believers, he used a formulaic phrase indicating that believers everywhere prayed and worshiped Jesus. Indeed, the phrase may have been a common description for the entire Christian life, or at least a common description of Christian worship. And there he gives a footnote by Horato, uh, Hurtado, One God, One Lord, on page 109 to verify his claim. Some argue that in the religious context of the New Testament to worship proskuneo, a deity is only complete when it involves a sacrifice. And since no sacrifices were offered to Christ, we have less than full worship offered to Christ in the New Testament. However, the ritualistic invocation of the divine name is associated with sacrifice in the Old Testament and sacrifices were abolished and replaced with the sacrifice of praise in the New Testament, which can be verified in Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 14, uh, the 13th chapter and verse 15. Here, the ritualistic invocation of the divine name is transferred to the name of Jesus. And what is the New Testament equivalent of sacrificial worship? Uh, he goes on in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 at verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As it is standard in his letter, Paul invoked both God and Jesus in pronouncing grace and peace upon the believers, a remarkable expression for a monotheistic Jew. From the onset, we see certain duality that goes beyond the typical Old Testament expression. Clearly, Paul made some distinction between God and Jesus, but at the same time associated or equated them in some way. Perhaps the best way to understand this phrase is in examining the Old Testament priestly invocation of God's name upon God's people. It appears in number 6, 22 20, uh, through verse 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you, excuse me, thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
So they shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The priests specifically pronounce grace and peace upon God's people by calling the divine name Yahweh over them. In the New Testament rhetorical situation, Paul adopted this blessing by using the name of Jesus instead of Yahweh. To describe Jesus as separate from Yahweh but performing the works of Yahweh would compromise monotheism. There is excuse me, there is no indication that Paul intended this meaning. The alternative is to view Jesus as performing the works of Yahweh by being the extension or expression of Yahweh. And I will make a reader's note here. This is probably one of the areas of uh, oneness Pentecostal uh, Christological uh, method that is commonly uh, misunderstood that as it relates to the man Christ Jesus, we wholeheartedly uh, embrace a distinction but the difference uh, that we would probably politely disagree with many of our co-colleagues and other theological traditions, we would not maintain that this is a distinction of persons, but of course, a distinction of nature or manifestation. Uh, and that's another subject. I don't want to get off on a, uh, a red trail there, or but I will pick up with the next paragraph. This understanding gained support from 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter at the 12th verse, so that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you, in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The last clause in Greek, and please do not laugh at me, I am still struggling to learn bits and pieces of Greek, kata, tain, karin, tu, theu, emoen, kai, Curio Iesu Christu. There is one definite article, the which is Tau, for both God, Theu, and Lord Jesus Christ, Curio, uh, Curio Iesu Christu, which are separated by and, which is Chi. Based on this Greek construction, we can translate the phrase as follows. According to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and he gives a reference to the NIV and he gives a footnote. See Longnecker's Christology 138. This verse is likely an example of the following rule in BDF uh, 276.3. The article is naturally omitted when the second of the two phrases is in opposition connected by Kai. And he gives the example this author does in second uh, in Titus, the second chapter at the 13th verse and second Peter the first chapter at the first verse. Moreover, uh, excuse me, first Corinthians one and three, God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ share one preposition from which is apo. And thus it may mean Christ is the mediator of divine grace and peace. Paul did not speak of grace and peace coming from God and Jesus as from two different beings, but from the one God of Israel as revealed in Jesus Christ. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Here Paul used dual language to speak of Jesus as the agent or means of God's grace. He, he made a difference between Jesus from God, but at the same time attributed the action of God to Jesus. Verses 7 through 8, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul looked for the personal return of Jesus Christ in the end time. And he gives that example in, uh, we'll see later on in verse chapter 11 and verse 26. 
and he spoke of the end time judgment as the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord as the eschatological day of judgment. For instance, in Joel, it is a day when Yahweh will come at the head of an army and thus a day of judgment, but also a day of salvation for the righteous. Here, Jesus fulfills the role in Yahweh's Paul eschatological thought. Uh, verse 9, God is faithful by him. You were called in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In addition to this verse in Corinthian uh, correspondence, Paul used son standing alone one other time, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and the specific designation son of God one time. He did not use the term son of man. Paul spoke of Jesus as God's son only 17 times compared to over 200 times for Christ and over 300 times for Lord. He did not use it primarily as a divine title, but to describe Jesus as a true human who was born, died and rose again to fulfill God's plan of salvation for humanity. But when the fullness of time came, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may receive the adoption as children. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. Romans 5 and 10. Moreover, Paul connected this title with God's self-revelation to him. God, who has set me apart before I was born and, call, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Galatians, the first chapter, verses 15 through 16a, referring to his Damascus road encounter with the exalted Christ. That's fascinating because we know that when Paul, uh, being a Jew on the road of Damascus, and I'm, of course, giving a reader's note, uh, when the light shined and knocked Paul down, what was his response? He said, Lord, who art thou? Now, it's interesting, uh, the voice he heard, he, which is responded, and I uh, was telling him, said, Paul, why persecuted thou me, so to speak? Uh, from what I understand, that was in the Hebrew tongue. Now, if it was in the Hebrew tongue, I only could imagine perhaps maybe Paul responded in Hebrew. And if he responded in Hebrew, and if he said, Lord, Perhaps he said Yahweh. I, I, I'm just curious. And of course, I can't prove that. But these are just the random musings of um, <laughs> who I am, I guess. I just have strange thoughts like that. But as we go further, uh, <clears throat> theologically, the term son of God serves a twofold purpose in the New Testament. First, by contrast with the title of father, it underscores the authentic humanity of Jesus Christ in submission, submission to the transcendent God. While son of God very soon came to signify divine nature, it was probably used in a more functional manner by the earliest Jewish believers to, note, to denote G Jesus's unique relationship with God the Father and his obedience to the Father's will. At this point, the title was primarily functional, speaking of a human appointed by God or a human to whom God transferred royal authority. In the New Testament, it refers to the historical person of Jesus, not to a pre-existent being. 
Second, by identifying the work of the Son as the work of God through the Son, it describes God's manifestation and action in human flesh. Paul's language here is both functional and wholly theocentric. The God, the Father himself, is working salvation in that which has happened and will happen through Jesus Christ is what Paul wants to emphasize when he speaks of the Son of God. So definitely from a oneness perspective, when we speak of the Son of God, which we wholeheartedly embrace because you don't have a gospel without the Son of God, that kind of ruins the story. We understand that Jesus was an authentic human being in every way as we are. Now, again, I do believe that there is a mystery as it relates to how the divine attribute uh, uh, paracritically so somewhat uh, mingles with the finite. I do. I will admit that. But at the same time, uh, this is something as apostolic Pentecostals, we don't deny. And I would say we uh, embrace wholeheartedly because you don't have a gospel without a true incarnation, which is the sonship. So when we speak of Jesus Christ, we're referring to the true God that's revealed in, in or better yet incarnate in the man. The New Testament writers then rejected the idea of another person in our sense of the word person other than the Father, the invisible God. Rather, the Son is a metaphor for God's own action because from Paul's monotheistic perspective, God could not literally beget another divine entity. His Son is himself and his aspect is concerned with his creation and supremely with his creative, uh, his creature man. So we say God gave his only Son, we mean that God gave himself. And he uh, uses that quote, uh, to back that up from uh, Anthony T. Hansen, the image of the invisible God. He wrote this, of course, uh, from a Trinitarian perspective, uh, that quote, that foot, uh, footnote that he gave. So they're just a evidence that oneness people, that's not something we're just saying, but this is a conclusion that Trinitarian scholarship has come to. So certainly if they can see it that way, we can see it that way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same power. Here again, the name of Jesus functions so, so, uh, socio-rhetorically, uh, just as the name of Yahweh did in the Old Testament. Paul invoked the name of Jesus in an appeal for unity in the church, much like taking the oath the purpose of invoking a name is in this fashion is to rely upon the power and authority of the name to accomplish it. The ancient Hebrews seems, uh, in a similar way invoked the name of Yahweh to invoke God's power and to pronounce blessings, cursings, and oaths. Paul believed the name of Jesus was effective in the same way and believed the Corinthian church would acknowledge the authority of the name. What's interesting here when I think about this, I remember having a conversation, of course, this is an author's note. I mean, this is a reader's note. Uh, I remember I was having a conversation with a dear friend and she, the, the subject, of course, of oneness Pentecostalism came up because I guess she having a conversation. We were both people that had strong religious convictions. And she, of course, we got into the subject of Jesus name baptism. And one of my approaches is that I don't believe in just jumping on people. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. If you jump on me, I will uh, make sure I explain what I believe, but I don't believe in being unnecessarily aggressive. You know, just don't be a jerk to be a jerk. Praise the Lord. And she asked me, she said, well, you know, we, I explained, she asked and I explained my reasoning. And of course I have to respect her. She was older than me. And so, you know, 
I, I have to make sure I give the appearance that she won the conversation because that's how I was raised. <laughs> you, you always let the elder get the last word. Uh, and we talked. And so we were in a bank and I was a banker there. And one day I was sitting at my desk and the thought came to me, how do I demonstrate the importance of the name of Jesus without possibly violating or destroying our friendship and just so happened I had to uh, withdraw some money out of my account and I needed it in cash because my wife was coming by to get some uh, money just so I could uh, pay for my son's daycare and I and it came to me said well fill out the deposit slip and instead of signing your name which was required just put uh, your your title on the name or just put your user number on the name because previously the main objection that uh my my friend had to jesus name baptism well it's just a name you know it's it's that you know me uh you so you know all of that's not necessary because even though you said father son all this you know who we're talking to and so i gave her the deposit slip and uh miss valanda looked at me and she said brandon i can't take this and because she was very good at her job i mean she could she could she could spot a fraudulent uh piece of currency a mile away i believe and i said well but you know me i work here every day and she said yes and i really enjoy you and we have good conversations she said but you must put your name on the, the withdrawal slip i said no, come on now. I even put my title there. What's the problem? And she said, it's not the same without the name. And when she said that, she stopped. And she looked at me. She said, point taken. <laughs> now fill your name out. <laughs> so she wasn't moving. And, and I never brought it up again uh, because I, I knew that she properly understood where I was coming from and it was so convenient by her working in a financial institution she understood uh by profession the seriousness of uh the uh the Sabrani uh Oakley Act uh, dealing with uh accounting and, and accountability but I just thought I would give that personal testimony I never forgot that and at verses 13 through 15 has Christ been divided was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except of Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Looking at the socio-rhetorical situation, Paul wrote against faction or fractionalism in the Corinthian church, in which various members were claiming to follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Peter, or Christ alone. The implication of his question is, yes, the Corinthians have wrongfully divided Christ. No matter, uh, excuse me, no, Paul was not crucified for them, but Christ was. No, they were not baptized in the name of Paul, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Since Christ died for all of them, and since all of them had been baptized in his name, they should overcome division and unite around Christ. To make this point, Paul appealed to the early practice of baptizing believers uh, with the invocation of the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of Jesus was prominent, was a prominent feature of their sacred conversion rite. As such, it was closely associated with the forgiveness of sin and the experience of salvation. The literal phrase here is into the name, which in the Greek is eis to onoma. First century rabbis used this phrase for religious rites to identify the God associated with the particular, excuse me, particular rite. Verse 124. Oh, and also interesting enough uh, from a banking term, 
uh, that phrase and it's uh, I forgot the gentleman's name I have his book it's called Baptized into the Name and it is written by a Trinitarian scholar and I have another by Everett Ferguson who is a well-renowned Church of Christ scholar he uh, makes a strong argument that there's sufficient evidence to show that within the first century um, there was a phrase to say in the name uh, was a, also a banking term or a term of uh, commerce it, it was a, something that was done in business to signify what happened to a person or who the ownership or what benefits were to be taken and applied to who so it's very interesting to me that uh, that same phrase is used consistently in Matthew 28 19 and also uh, uh, praise the Lord. And uh, of course, Acts 2.38, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God in the wisdom of God. The Old Testament describes Yahweh as having all power unlike other gods, and his name proclaims his power. Likewise, Yahweh has all wisdom unlike other gods, and he is the source of all wisdom for humans. He gives both wisdom and power. Daniel, the second chapter, verses 20 through 23. Here, Paul associated Christ with divine power and divine wisdom. And I don't want to go off a tangent too much, but one of the things I have been studying as of late is the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament which I think is uh, very interesting, which I think uh, someone would have to look at the wisdom of Solomon and uh, some some of these what we would consider apocryphal writings. But there already existed in the first century church uh, a well-established wisdom tradition that I believe the first century Christians could branch off their understanding. And so when we see phrases like the wisdom of God, it puts you in mind also of Proverbs 8, where even in the wisdom of Solomon, where wisdom is personified or this is an attribute of God that's used to personify uh, the God that's being described. And even when you look at Philo of Alexandria, some would say that maybe this was a, that Philo was using a hypostasis, uh, excuse me, a hypostasis-based articulation of, of, of the attributes. But the way Philo did it, he uh, made a hypothesis out of everything, power, wisdom, strength. Uh, so to me, it's very obvious that this is a way of speaking in the Greek context that Philo adopted to not uh, offend the Greek sensibilities of Middle Platonism that would not allow the great God to intervene or intermingle with created matter since in the Greek context, created matter was seen as the thing is uh was evil so I, I i don't lean to the logos view very heavy uh far as when people want to jump to it but that is there and i always think it's good to make it known but i definitely look at more of the hebraic concept of logos or wisdom because i think that makes more sense of what the first century church would have been using verses 30 through 31 it says he is the source of your life in christ jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, Paul associated Jesus with divine attributes and works. In addition to wisdom, the Old Testament describes righteousness, sanctification, and redemption as coming from Yahweh. And indeed, Exodus 6, 2 through 8 associates the significance of the name Yahweh with the redemptive work of Yahweh. Here, Paul attributed God's work of salvation to Jesus. Since Jesus is the source of all of these attributes, Paul admonished believers to glory only in 
him. And isn't it good when we glory in the Lord? Uh, kind of have, sometimes I read some of these things and I have flashbacks. Anybody remember that song growing up we, sing, we used to sing coming in church? We come to glorify his name, glorify his name, glorify his name. And I think it's very good to always remember that if we're going to glory, let's not glory in how much money we make. Let's not glory on our education. Praise the Lord. But let's glory in the name of Jesus to justify this praise to Jesus. Wonderful God. He quoted Jeremiah 9, 24, which advocates boasting in Yahweh. And he quoted the same statement again in 2 Corinthians 10, 17. The latter portion of Jeremiah 9, 22 revealed that Yahweh to be the source of righteousness, thus reinforcing the identification of Jesus with Yahweh here. Because of Paul's exalted view of Jesus, he saw no problem in taking a statement about Yahweh from the Hebrew scriptures and applying it directly to Jesus without justification or commentary. Moreover, he expected the various factions of the Corinthian church to agree with this practice. And I think about this sometimes uh, when looking at Jesus. And again, I would minimize a person sincerely who doesn't uh hold that Jesus is God because uh, I don't I, I just assume that nobody is trying to say something opposite of that but sometimes people have reasons for seeing how they see it and so I try to be sensitive to that fact but one thing is for sure that when you kind of compile all of these uh, attributes of deity that are ascribed to the Lord Jesus it's I mean if Jesus is not who Paul is kind of portraying him to be it would be blasphemy for a man to have such praise and such recognition. I just think he is who he, Paul is describing him to be. The LXX, which is the Septuagint, no doubt, uh, facilitated this identification. Instead of reading Yahweh aloud in Hebrew, the Jews substituted the word Adonai, which is Lord. And when they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they substituted the word, uh, they substituted it with the word kurios, which is Lord. And that reference is in page 52, which is Coleman, uh Christology of the New Testament, pages 200 through 1. So what we see is that Adonai that would have been replaced in the Hebrew in the Septuagint tradition, it would have been curios. And this is what I always think is good. And again, I don't, I'm not an expert on the Septuagint. I understand some things, but when you see that curios there, uh, many times we have to remember that it's a word for substitution. Now, I want to hit on this point because this is actually why, why I bought up the Jehovah's Witness uh, translation of the scriptures, because I always want to get primary sources when I'm dealing with positions or traditions that are different from mine. And as I was looking at First uh, Corinthians, it's interesting, First uh, Corinthians third chapter, verse 14, but the minds were dull and this is out of their version. I don't recommend it. I'm just giving this, uh, I think it's, I think it's intentionally biased, but their minds were dull for, to this present day. The same veil remains uh, unlifted when the old covenant is read because it is taken away only by the means of Christ. In fact, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. But when one turns to Jehovah, Jehovah, the veil is taken away. Now Jehovah is a spirit and where the spirit of Jehovah is, there is freedom. Uh, and you go down to verse 18, all of us, while we are with unveiled faces, reflect like mirrors the glory of Jehovah are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, exactly as in the, as done by Jehovah, the spirit. Now what's interesting here 
And if you go to chapter four in the Watchtower's translation, at verse five, for we are preaching not ourselves, but about Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, this word Lord they have here, this is the same word Lord that's used in verse 16, which is a... Uh, Curios, it's the same one used in verse 17, Curios, the same one used in verse 18, Curios. But why do you have a Lord here, not Jehovah? I just thought I I, I, would, I would point that out. I just I just thought they said, well, you, you're throwing shade to religion. No, I'm just showing. I think it's very in interesting. The whole chapter, you have uh, translated this as Jehovah. And we get to that portion. Now you want to say Lord. Not, now you understand what the word translates. I, I think saints, we ought to be more suspicious. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This usage of the LXX causes some overlap language between uh, the language for God and the language applied to Christ. And when we understand that principle is something you really can't just put away because it's obviously there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now we must think about this and, and I, I'm going to continue reading Brother Bernard's commentary but think about this term the Lord of glory, right? In the Old Testament, who is the Lord of glory? Who is the King of glory? Uh, interchangeably, the Lord God, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. I thank the Lord. And so, look, these are obviously phrases that are divine in nature. Thank you, Jesus. So when you see Lord of glory, just, just think about that in the Old Testament. Wonderful God. It's been Jesus this whole time. I mean, oh, thank you, Lord. Been the Father in the Old Testament. But we got Paul as a Jew, as a Pharisee. I feel him using this same title and applying it to Jesus. My God from Zion, you think he's trying to tell us something? This verse gives Jesus the divine title of Lord of Glory. It is equivalent to the Old Testament titles of King of Glory, as in Psalms 24, 8 through 10, and God of Glory, Psalms 29 and 3 for Yahweh. Isn't that good? I tell you, that is awesome. It's, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's almost it's like here a little, there a little. It's just, it's so much truth in this Bible. You, you, you need help to get it wrong. Uh, verse uh, chapter 216, for who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This verse adapts Isaiah 40 and 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has instructed them, instructed him. Do you see how Paul made an adaptation there? He used the same language from the Old Testament. Now in Isaiah 40, that's the father. I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's the one true God that we have him using that same title for Jesus. Paul thereby equated the mind of Christ with the mind or spirit of Yahweh from verses uh, 10 through 16. We see plainly that for Paul, the spirit is not a third entity, a power or influence, or even a personal being, but rather that the spirit is God, the inner personal being of God's self-consciousness or his deity. God's inner consciousness has been disclosed in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul repeatedly used the phrase in Christ, in crystal, to describe believers, indicating that their spiritual life originated with and was sustained by Christ. The effect is to evaluate Christ, or excuse me, elevate Christ above all other humans. 
verse 23. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were the people of Yahweh. They belonged to him. For Paul, New Testament believers are first foremost the possession of Christ, the leader of the redeemed human race, and then by extension of God. Chapter four, verses four through five. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things uh, now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I thank God for that. I'm looking for his coming. Then each one will receive commendation from the Lord. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. In the end, he is coming to judge the earth. Psalms 96, 13 in uh, Psalms 98 uh, and 9. Paul placed Jesus in the position of the eschatological judge here in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. He used the Old Testament expression for God's salvific appearance to identify Jesus as the eschatological Lord who is coming, a significant attribution of the function of God to Jesus. Why would he use Jesus to uh, be a fulfillment statement? Because Jesus is, his name means salvation. And so when we have Jesus, we have salvation coming. We have him making himself clear. Uh, because this is the true uh, way in which God will bring those things to pass. And I'm coming to a, an end. I actually did a little bit more than what I planned because it just got good to me. Uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul used the name of Jesus to invoke divine power and authority to execute divine judgment, much as in the same way in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. Notably, the believers gather to worship in the name of the Lord Jesus and issue judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. Once again, the name of Jesus functions as the rhetorical equivalent of Yahweh in the Old Testament and the eschatological day of Yahweh becomes the day of Jesus. To make the thought explicit, some manuscripts add Jesus to the day of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 11. And this is what some of you are uh, used to be. But you were washed. Thank God for that washing. You were sanctified. Thank God I'm sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. The name of the Lord Jesus was a key element in the conversion of the Corinthians, including their washings from sin, sanctification, and justification. This verse probably refers to the early practice of water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ in the early church as seen in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. That phrase, washing, many times goes over and again, sometimes of, of the way we kind of pick it up. But in most cases, when you see that phrase for washing, it is in the context of baptism uh, or, or better yet it's a euphemism for baptism. I think it's in John Calvin's commentary in Titus three and five, where he says through the washing and the regeneration, even brother John Calvin saw this as an allusion to water baptism. So I praise the Lord. There's a witness there. Acts similarly links washing from sin, water baptism, the name of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38 and Acts 2.22, 6 
16. Jesus was invoked in the initiation rite as the divine agent in the conversion. The duality here is connected with the related but distinct initiatory experience of water baptism and spirit baptism. As in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, 5 and 4, the name of Jesus functions like the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read this last portion. And I guess I open the stage so we can talk a little bit. But this just got, I tell you, it got good to me. The more I read it, the more I liked it. Uh, verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This verse makes a distinction between God and Christ in the context of the resurrection of humans. The title God communicates transcendence and an omnipotence, while the divine title Lord identifies a human who died and rose and in the foremost for other humans. Uh, verses uh, 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whosoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said the two shall be one flesh, but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul consisted, uh, considered believers to be members of the mystical body of Christ and united to him within spirit. Christ himself functioned in effect as the Christian sacred space. You know, they have, they have, I think they had a, a saying trade in spaces, but I thank God for sacred spaces. Chapter 7, verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. Paul cited the Lord Jesus as an authoritative teacher. Like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 11 and 1, his commands must be obeyed. I think someone was telling me a little while ago, uh, they said, well, you teaching Lordship salvation. Well, Jesus said, how can you call me? Don't call me this. You're not going to call me Lord. Because you can't have him as Savior if you don't have him as Lord. And if that's Lordship salvation, well, I can do no better but then to quote what Jesus said. Uh, uh, we have to obey him. And it's interesting with that subject of divorce, and Nathan touched that uh, today. But it's uh, I had a friend, and uh, we were out eating, and I, and we were at the table. And uh, he's a preacher. We grew up together. But he kind of went on a much more liberal uh, theological tradition. And uh, he was talking about his next wife. Now, this was his third wife he, he had at this time. Now, all of them are alive for context. Now, I'm not I'm not here to hit hit that axe today, but one of those women have to be your wife. That's all I'm saying. At least one of them need to be your wife. You, you, you got it wrong three times in a row. I mean, all of them still alive. Nobody died. I mean, that's Lord, at least I know you need to have one at the time. My Lord. And was looking for another one. Uh, but when we look at the, the word of God and what he wants from us, God doesn't want us to live in that way. He wants us to live in a way that will glorify him. And he goes on to verse 22. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is, is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whosoever was free when he is called is a slave of Christ. Whether slave or free, believers belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as the Old Testament believers belong to Yahweh as his people. Therefore, or better yet, Paul thereby placed Christ in the unique category as universal owner or patron, superior to all other humans. And with that, I will close and I will open the stage and we can discuss some of the things I read today. But I was reading this and with uh, some of the commentary that, you know, we were having yesterday and some of um, different friends, uh, 
I thought it was a good conversation. I was looking through my library and I said, um, I guess I felt like they used to say growing up, I just felt led to sit down and read a little bit of this because I think not only is the work scholastic, but I think it's very true. Uh, but if anybody 